0: This is Wrestling, with your host, Isaac Scanlon. Welcome, one and all, to this bonus episode of Wrestling. So, recently, we Protestants observed, to some degree the anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, where German monk Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the church door against the medieval Catholic Church. He was brought before the Pope, he refused to recant, and, as they say, the rest is history. But Luther's theological career did not end there. He wrote multiple Bible commentaries and theological treatises, which, fittingly, were not without controversy. Arguably, his most infamous commentary is on the book of James. Luther calls James a straw epistle, stating it lacks mention of Christ and the gospel. And upon first glance, Luther has a point. James explicitly states, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, James 2.24. Does the scripture not teach we are justified by faith alone and not by works of the law? Because as Paul teaches, by works of the law, nobody will be justified. So how, how how do we work through this? But despite Luther's observations, Protestants insist the book of James is Holy Scripture, clinging to the Reformed teaching of Sola Scriptura. Which, as an aside, that doesn't mean Scripture is the only way God speaks to us, but rather, according to Ligonier, Sola Scriptura means that all truth necessary for our salvation and spiritual life is taught either explicitly or implicitly in Scripture. If James is Scripture, we're stuck with it. So does that mean that sola fide is fake news, given that faith without works is dead? Why did the church deviate from Luther's view? The answer to this is twofold. One, Luther was mistaken about the epistle of James. But also we are mistaken about Luther's comments concerning James. Links to resources I use for my research can be found in the description of this episode and all scriptures cited are in the ESV unless otherwise stated. And I also want to offer a quick disclaimer. I am not a vocational theologian, I haven't been to seminary, but I do have a knack for the scriptures, as people around me have testified, and I've done research for this episode, so take that as you may. But I'm by no means an official representative of any of the viewpoints that I will espouse, and the viewpoints here are mine alone. With that said, let's get to it. So the apparent discrepancy between Paul and James is resolved when we examine James's claim of justification by works in its context. The preceding verses are as follows. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? I referenced this passage back in episode 8 of this podcast. And I said it was Abraham's faith that enabled him to obey God in sacrificing his son. So to recap, that verse, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, is quoted from Genesis chapter 12. And the thing about which Abraham believed God was that God would produce for him an heir. So when God commanded Abraham to sacrifice this promised heir, Abraham obeyed because he still believed God would give him the promised heir. Indeed, the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, the Hall of Faith chapter, confirms it was by faith That Abraham offered up his son Isaac, for Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him, Isaac, from the dead. If Abraham lacked this faith, he would not have obeyed God. Instead, he would have played it safe and refused to sacrifice his son because he had to preserve his heir. Similar to how Abraham disobeyed by conceiving Ishmael with his slave Hagar because he had a lapse of faith. So this is why James says the scripture concerning Abraham's faith was fulfilled by his works. Abraham showed his faith by his works. All this is to say, if we look at James 2.24 in context, We see his assertion that we are saved by works enhances the doctrine of sola fide rather than contradicting it. (laughs) We understand scripture by looking at its context. Shocking. It's definitely understandable that a Christian committed to this principle of sola fide would be shocked by the epistle of James. I sure was when I first read it. Of course, like any good Christian, I knew somehow James could be reconciled to the rest of scripture, so I just needed to shut up with all my questions. (laughs) Okay, not actually, but you get my point. But the, the more one studies the scriptures, the more one sees that the seeming contradictions actually work together to form one cohesive narrative. The more I've been studying the book of James, that's what I'm going through right now actually. That's largely what inspired this episode. But as I've been really studying deeply, I've seen previous concerns I've had about the epistle are unfounded. Works in fact are critical to the Christian life. Certainly they do not merit salvation. But they are the inevitable outflow of salvation. Do not those of us who are in Christ have the spirit of the living God dwelling within us? Indeed, those who are in Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh along with its passions and desires. To follow Christ is to become a new person, to be made a new creation. This isn't something we did, this was something God did, by grace, through faith. And that is why Christ taught us that branches that do not bear fruit will be cut off and cast into the fire. And concerning the works of the flesh, Paul said those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But yet scripture is adamant this is entirely a work of God. And we still sin. We're still in need of his grace. I tend to be an all-or-nothing thinker. I tend to forget about God's patience. Because it's frustrating to know that I'm called to this radical holiness. But I continue to fall miserably short of this. You know, sometimes I wonder if I'm making any real progress, and I bet I'm not alone in this, in this mindset. But yet, as I've mentioned on previous episodes, especially back on episode two, Luther himself states, we need to have the gospel beaten into our heads repeatedly because we are allergic to the gospel. And that's so true, because we just want to pat ourselves on the back. (laughs) But other times, we are especially reminded of our own sin, or we're going through a rough patch with God, falling under intense condemnation. And during these times, we must be reminded our status with God is based entirely on the atoning work of Christ, his imputed righteousness. In fact, the Christian is no more righteous during his best moment than at his worst moment. And this whole sanctification process, we go through ups and downs. It's not always just this smooth, straight line. I think some advice that we can take from this, I'm actually going to quote one of Jordan's, one of Jordan Peterson's rules for life, which says, compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not any other person at any other time. <laughs> yeah, and that's important because, I mean, if you compare yourself to someone else, either you're just going to be puffed up with pride because you're going to. Notice how much better you are than that schmuck over there. Or more likely, you're going to find yourself falling short. But it's important to, to look, at the, look at the big picture. Come, think about where you were at just a few months ago. Chances are you've grown quite a bit. You know, sanctification is this lifelong process. It's a grind. It takes time. But you just got to stick with it. God gives us faith. Expecting works, yet he is patient. And I thank God that he is patient. Because what would we do without that? Yes, you may have noticed there is some tension here. It's hard to hold God's radical expectations for our holiness and that our status with God does not depend on the works produced by our faith. Because such faith was a manifestation of what God gave us, which appropriates Jesus' atoning death for us, giving us Jesus' perfect righteousness, which is both entirely necessary and entirely sufficient for our salvation. Nothing can change that. And Luther, early in his career, stumbled over this tension. There was a Desiring God article titled An Open Letter to Martin Luther, which was really helpful in understanding the reformer's mistake in evaluating the epistle of James. And what this article does is it applies the biblical teaching of the body of Christ to the different books of the Bible. So as a reminder, Paul says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need for you. Pointing out that books such as Romans and Galatians serve one function by focusing almost exclusively on salvation by grace through faith alone, while James serves not a contrary function, but a different function by focusing on Christian living by faith. In other words, the tension between James and Paul, and more generally, the tension between grace and works is supposed to be there because you need both of these ideas in order to live the way that God calls us to live. God is so big, so multi-dimensional. There are so many different aspects to the Christian life and just how fully he has redeemed us. God's character is so much bigger than any of us can imagine, which is why he used so many books. The Bible, it is one big book, but it's 66 smaller books, which tell us different aspects about his character. In fact, we even see this variation within the epistles of the Apostle Paul. In fact, some biblical scholars actually argue books like Romans and Galatians that focus almost entirely on justification by grace through faith alone. Yes, those were written by Paul. And then they'll look at other epistles such as Colossians, and they'll say, well, the epistle of Colossians, that's about our participation of being in Christ It doesn't speak of grace through faith. So that couldn't have been written by the Apostle Paul. But my question is, how are these principles mutually exclusive? As important as it is, as critical as it is to understand our justification, because if we're not justified, then what's the point of any of this? Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, right? Yet, our God has a clear vision for our sanctification beyond salvation. And I know when I was a new believer, I really struggled to grasp this. Because, yeah, it's just hard to hold this, this, this paradox in your mind. If I didn't know any better, it would almost feel like cognitive dissonance. And how this played out in my life is one day I'd be resting on my laurels without any true devotion to God because I was relying on his grace. What did I have to do, right? I'd stress, hey, there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then I would hear some convicting sermon and I'd promise God I would never relapse into that kind of lukewarmness again. And I would never be able to stop thinking about how lukewarm I am. And, you know, I would consider hopping on a plane and like going to Iran or something because, you know, the believers there are so much more sanctified because they actually have to go through stuff. But of course I didn't. Instead, I would just sit around. I'd ruthlessly browbeat myself. And all I could think about was, man, God has got to be really disappointed in me right now. I mean, wouldn't he be? If he's as holy as he says he is, he'd have to be terribly disappointed. (laughs) And I bet just about everyone listening finds this painfully relatable. It has taken a lot of time, a lot of the spirit looking, working in me, a lot of studying the word, sermons, fellowship, etc. Not to fully understand this tension, because there is no there to get to, but to make my peace with the simultaneous realities of the cost of discipleship and the glorious freedom of the gospel so it was with Luther as central as he is to church history and world history for that matter he was just a man a sinful man as he knew better than anyone Luther was dead wrong about James early in his career and about several other things not to mention you know being a rabid anti-Semite. He was just a little off on that point. But yet, there is strong evidence from Martin Luther's own writings that he came to understand James's role in the canon. And just as an aside here, Luther never actually suggested that James be removed from the canon in the first place, contrary to popular belief. He only suggested the epistle be removed from theological classrooms. Nor did he say James contained nonsense as others attest. But what Luther was referring to as nonsense in his commentary was the Catholic Church's application of James five thirteen through eighteen where James instructs church elders to pray for and anoint with oil the sick, that they might be healed. Which the church has interpreted to mean, last rites must be administered to the dying so they can avoid extra time in purgatory, or something like that. So it was the church's interpretation of James that was nonsense according to Luther, and not the epistle itself. But at any rate, Luther came around on James. From his commentary on Romans, he did understand James's compatibility with sola fide. He illustrates this with an example. Quote, a monkey can imitate the actions of people, but he is not a man on that account. But if he should become a man, This doubtless would not take place by virtue of these actions, by which he has imitated a man, but by some other power, namely, God's. But then, having become a man, he would truly and rightly perform the actions of a man. So Luther understood just how radical the Christian's transformation is once he is placed in Christ, To be in Christ is invariably to be a new creation. Just as a person performs the actions of a person because he's a person. It's his nature. Think of all the things you do involuntarily. Nobody has to tell you to breathe. You just do it. In fact, you might be mad at me right now because I'm making you think about your breathing. Anyway, it is in your nature to breathe. And thank God for that, because the oxygen you inhale from breathing is essential to life. For the Christian, works are as oxygen from the air, which powers the body. And the new nature given by God is the brainstem, which automatically tells the body to breathe. You could argue that it is the oxygen that saves you, and you'd be right, because without it the body dies. But on the other hand, by having a functioning brainstem, one is already saved, because the brainstem will tell the body to breathe which is why it is impossible to kill yourself by holding your breath. Your instincts will force you to breathe whether you want to or not at some point. Likewise, the true Christian can stop doing life-giving works, but at some point, the new nature will force the believer to obey God. And Luther himself experienced this at the Diet of Worms. When he said, here I stand, I can do no other. So help me God, amen. Metaphysically, that is absurd. Nobody was forcing Luther to stand and refuse to recant his works. He had legs, he could have walked out if he wanted to. In fact, that's what the Pope wanted him to do. But Martin Luther had a new nature. His conscience was captive to the word of God. And no matter how afraid he was of the wrath of the Pope or the Holy Roman Emperor, Luther had to stand by his works because he believed in his works. The reformer had faith. And by faith, he was given a new nature. And by this new nature, he did works completing his faith, just as stated by James. Martin Luther was not compelled to refuse to recant only because he feared God's wrath or even his disappointment. Luther was commanded to stand because of his saving faith. And perhaps it was this experience he had in mind when he wrote, the works of the law are those, he says, which take place outside of faith. And by the way, that he is the Apostle Paul this is his commentary on Romans, which take place outside of faith and grace and are done at the urging of the law, which either forces obedience through fear or allures us through the promise of temporal blessings. But the works of faith, he says, are those which are done out of the spirit of liberty and solely for the love of God. And the latter cannot be accomplished Except by those who have been justified by faith. To its justification, the works of the law add nothing. Incredible. Though Luther previously insisted James is an epistle of Paul, there he was living it out and writing about it the great reformer was struggling to tame the tension between James and Paul, just like the rest of us do. He was not exempt from his declaration that those in Christ are simultaneously just and sinner. And I know from those who have gone before me that this will be a lifelong struggle. And if you will, something to wrestle with. (laughs) And I'm definitely still working on it. One day, I need to be reminded of God's calling for me to be holy, and that faith without works is dead, and those who continually sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the next day, I need to remind myself that my standing before God is fixed because of the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son. Another pair of opposite ditches to consider is that some suppose, I am justified entirely by faith alone, and I never truly outgrow this teaching. What I say so far is true. No matter how much I morally improve, I will always be a sinner, so I should not expect too much change. But such grossly underestimates the power of faith as James describes. Did Christ not teach that our faith is able to move mountains? I can speak from experience on this one. There were sins in my life that I thought, even a few months ago, I would stagnate on. The sin did not enslave me, but it was definitely present, and I thought I was stuck in this limbo for life. Recently, as I have sought support from my church community concerning these things, And I saw the Holy Spirit working through this. You know, I I had a mentor explain to me, sanctification is not waiting around for God to transform us while we do nothing. But rather, we have been united with Christ in his death and resurrection. To bring up the verse again, those who are in Christ Jesus have crucified, that is the past perfect tense, the flesh along with its passions and desires, and now Christ lives in us. Thus, though the scripture is true in saying our righteous deeds are as filthy garments, the scripture is also true in proclaiming, in James no less, that the one who looks into the law of liberty and perseveres, being not a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And in his critique of James, I respectfully contend Luther fell into this pit that I was talking about. And that is the pit into which Luther's view of sanctification is susceptible. Now, I should probably take this moment to explain to you the Lutheran view of sanctification. The Lutheran view of sanctification is well summarized by an article called A Lutheran View of Sanctification by a professor of theology at Luther Seminary, go figure, named Gerhard Ford. He writes, Sanctification is simply the art of getting used to justification. Sanctification, Ford insists, is not a separate entity from salvation. It is nothing we do, but rather it is a work of God's Spirit invading us, making us new beings. Not that we're entirely passive, he would say there is a morality that comes out of this. But, you know, it's God's spirit invading us. We're passive in this. And there is much merit to this claim. For our old man died with Christ. God does not call us to be improved versions of ourselves. The Bible is not a self-improvement book. God has decisively killed the flesh and made a new creation. Nevertheless, this view lends itself to antinomianism though Luther himself vigorously opposed antinomianism in his life. In fact, he called those who use grace as a license to sin worse idolaters than those blindly following the legalistic pope. And the article is definitely not antinomian. I am merely pointing out how Luther's teachings, and more specifically his devaluing of works stemming from faith, these works laid out in the book of James can lead to spiritual growth. By contrast, the Reformed view of sanctification, to which I personally ascribe, and as described by John Kelvin in his magnum opus, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, and largely adhered to by the Puritans, describes sanctification as living out our union with Christ, as described in Romans chapter 6, where we have been crucified with Christ, buried with Christ, and then resurrected into new life with Christ, and we now stand in Christ. So while the Lutheran view states sanctification is to get used to our unconditional justification by God and living that out, The Reformed view states sanctification is a matter of living out our deeper union with Christ, meaning that the Christian has put on a new nature, has already become the new man God demands. This is what I was explaining earlier with the advice I got from my mentor concerning sin in my life, where through my union with Christ, I strive, yet not I, but Christ in me, for holiness. Being a doer of the word, I am blessed in my doing, according to James. Elsewhere, we hear Paul say, I worked harder than them all, yet not I, but the grace of Christ in me. And I strive with all my might that he powerfully works in me. I believe that is is Second Corinthians and Colossians, respectively. So here we see James and Paul agree that we are not entirely passive in our sanctification. Thus, I find the Reformed view of sanctification more faithful to Scripture. That said, the Reformed view is more susceptible to the other opposite pit, which is to suppose that we are our own sanctifiers. The aforementioned Ford article makes a solid argument in defense of the Lutheran view where he says, this is radically different from our usual conditional thinking. Where the logic would be one where with the help of grace, one gains progressively more and more righteousness until one needs less and less grace, until one perhaps needs no grace at all, referring to other models of sanctification Ford goes on to warn that these views lead one to believe he is no longer in need of grace because one is already united with Christ. And yes, this is the pit of the Reformed view. It makes us quick to forget that sanctification is entirely a work with God. It makes us quick to abandon that solid rock foundation on which our faith is founded. Thus we and thus that we are still wholly dependent on God. Moreover, no matter how sanctified we become, we are always in need of God's grace, because at the end of the day, we are still sinners. We still fall grossly short of God's glory, because he is just that holy, just that righteous. Scripture doesn't promise us that the work that God began in us will be completed until the day Christ returns. Until then, creation groans, and we plead for God's mercy. Hence, we need the gospel continually beaten into our heads, as Luther stated, because we are absolutely allergic to the scandalous, pride-stripping gospel. So through that whole bunny trail, and this whole episode, I hope to show you the complexity of the issues of sanctification, faith, works, and Martin Luther's view on the book of James. It's easy to criticize Luther for his brazen statements about the holy canon, but honestly, we should give him a break. Great reformer that he was, He had to wrestle with these issues just like the rest of us. And over the course of his life, he increasingly figured it out. First understanding we are saved by grace, through faith, not of works lest any man should boast. Then understanding we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. For good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It takes time for anyone to truly grasp this for all it's worth. It sure took time for Luther, and it's taking time for me to understand this. But that's the Christian life growing in faith and good works, yet wholly dependent on God's grace when we stumble. So I want to leave you with this encouragement. See your faith move mountains, but do not rejoice in that. But rejoice that your name is written in heaven, all because of this faith. Sola Fide, brothers and sisters. Sola Fide.